Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and joining me this week is returning guest, John Dorowski. Welcome, John. Thank you. Happy to be here. And today we are talking about Brian Dalyrimple from the short story, Dalyrimple Goes Wrong, and also Jimmy Valentine from the short story, A Retrieved Reformation. Uh, now, these short stories, one, uh, Dalyrimple Goes Wrong, was written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it was published in a short story collection called Flappers and Philosophers in 1920. And it tells the story of a World War I hero trying to succeed in life after returning home. And then A Retrieved Reformation is a short story by O. Henry that was published in uh, the Cosmopolitan magazine in 1903. And it tells the story of a safe cracker being released from jail and then having to debate whether to stay in a life of crime or to go straight. John? I had not ever read either of these stories. These were both your suggestions. So why don't you tell me how you came to them? Well, um, and this is something I've discussed previously on the podcast. I came to it through the Classic Tales podcast, where uh, each week they just read through a classic public domain story. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years ago, they did a selection of O'Henry stories, including this retreat Reformation, which I really enjoyed. And then uh, a couple months later, they did the Dolly Rumpel Goes Wrong, and something just clicked of saying there's something that would be worth discussing about these two stories together. Yeah. And I mean, they're published, uh, you know, within what, a 17 year period, both, uh, uh, you know, one before World War One and one, one after, but a similar era of uh, literature. And there's definitely some uh, shared uh dna between the stories one is definitely far more cynical than the other one <laughs> uh which we'll get to after we do the the, the plot summary just, but i really did just oh, guess which author is more cynical <laughs> i mean oh henry's not always like a fun read but but of the two i think i think f scott Fitzgerald definitely has the reputation of more of that modernist cynicism uh running through his work where i'm going to tell you about the world and what's wrong with it <laughs> um so yeah, it is. Uh, Dally Rimple goes wrong. Has more more of a cynical air uh, about it. Um, but I, I definitely enjoyed both of these. Um, the Fitzgerald one just fit so perfectly in the way that I discuss modernism uh, with my students when we're we're talking about that right. era of American literature. That I was like, oh, I may actually slide this one into the rotation. <laughs> um, yeah, next I mean, time I'm, I'm, I'm not, teaching American lit. I'm not that familiar with Fitzgerald's short stories, but this one really impressed me. Yeah. Um, all right. A little bit of trivia, trivia about uh, these authors. S. Scott Fitzgerald lived from 1896 to 1940. He's most well known for his novel, The Great Gatsby. He's credited with the term jazz age to describe America in the 1920s. He was part of the lost generation of American modernist writers. Um, so in between World War One and World War Two, uh, that's the, the height of modernism in art and literature. And there were a group of Americans that were living in Paris um, that shared maybe some the thematic aesthetic to a lot of their writing. Uh, that, that they were uh, producing at the time. This is an era with modernism that's very uh, disenchanted with the way things have been and uh, very often critiquing uh, tradition and status quo uh, of things, uh, which is definitely something you can find <laughs> in, in a lot of Fitzgerald's work. Um, so he came 
to write this particular story when a friend challenged Fitzgerald to write a war story for a collection. Uh, Fitzgerald then tried to sell the story to magazines with the name Variety. But his agent was unable to find a buyer, so Fitzgerald changed the name to Dalrymple Goes Wrong and published it in the magazine The Smart Set. And then it got put into his collection, uh, which is one of my favorite short story uh, collection titles, The uh, Flappers and Philosophers, <laughs> which just really fits for a commentary about the 1920s. Yeah, just kind of sums um, so, it up. <laughs> yep. Uh, O'Henry is the pen name of William Sidney Porter, and he lived from 1862 to 1910. And he is most uh, famous for his short stories with surprise endings. Gift of the Magi is probably the most iconic of all of his short stories. Um, before he became established as a writer, Porter worked as a banker and he was fired for sloppy bookkeeping, but then later arrested and charged with embezzlement. He fled to Honduras when, before he could be prosecuted for this. And he lived there for six months, but then he heard that his wife was dying. So he returned to the States, surrendered himself, um, said, said goodbye to his wife, uh, and then was sentenced to jail for five years. But he was let off after serving three uh, for good behavior there. So while in prison, though, he began submitting short stories for publication under the pen name of O. Henry. Uh, after getting out of jail, he moved to New York City, and between 1902 and 1910, he wrote 381 short stories. That is so many short stories in an eight-year span. That is, that is prolific. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so both of these men are dying in their 40s. Uh, so, so uh, I mean, Fitzgerald wrote what many consider to be the great American novel. It's always listed in the conversation for that, as well as, a, a, I mean, several other classic novels and a lot of short stories. Oh, Henry, hundreds of short stories, and they're both dying in their 40s. Um, we, we missed out on a lot of work um, because of their, their passing. Um, I will just say about O. Henry, there is a lot of speculation about this pen name. He himself gave an answer once in, a, in an interview that uh, he and a friend were just looking through a society page and just grabbed uh, a name for a last name and saw the name Henry and like, oh, that works. And then he decided that O was a nice, easy uh, to form letter. <laughs> to put in front of it but then there's lots of other speculation about like is this some reference to the ohio penitentiary oh henry uh you know where he where he had served time in jail uh there was when he was in jail um he worked in the hospital at, at, at the jail um in fact i saw that he never actually spent a night in his jail cell because he just made himself useful at the jail hospital and had a little room at the hospital <laughs> um but there was a, apparently a druggist there that had a name Henry. Uh, and so people speculate that it might have been named to honor uh, someone that he worked with when he was in jail. I don't know. Um, this particular story of Retrieved Reformation uh, was adapted into a Broadway play in 1910. And it has since been adapted to film four times, 1915, 1920, 1928, and 1942. But not since then, which <laughs> a story is like that adapted so quickly. It's kind of surprising that it hasn't been touched in uh well, you know 80 years at this point uh and just a little bit of trivia that 1928 film was actually mgm's first talkie uh was an adaptation of a retrieved reformation all right well john you were kind enough to write the summaries for these but before we do that listeners we want to uh thank you uh for downloading this episode for listening and we especially want to thank any of you who support us on patreon if you'd like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month all supporters on patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we have earned. Uh, we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss so john on to the summary of these two short stories which delightfully for you 
have no time travel, no real <laughs> plot twist, no B plots. It's just what happens to Jimmy Valentine and what happens to Brian Dalrymple or Dalrymple. And they are pretty short. The retrieved reformation uh, copy I looked at was like eight pages. Dalrymple Grover Strong was eighteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to listen on the Classic Tales podcast, it'll take you a little over an hour for both. Yeah. So, all right, I'm going to go in chronological order with a retrieved okay. reformation first. Sounds good. Jimmy Valentine is being released from prison 10 months into a four-year sentence for safe-cracking, though he claims he's never broken into a safe. Once free, he goes and reclaims his specially made safe-cracking tools. Then a series of safes are broken into, the latest models. Police officer Ben Price is put on the case. In the town of Elmore, a young lady catches Jimmy's eye, the daughter of the bank owner. It's love at first sight. Jimmy opens the shoe shop as Ralph Spencer and becomes engaged to Annabelle Adams to be married in two weeks. He's even ready to give his safe-cracking tools away. Then Ben uh, just Just for the listeners, like this is about a year passes between him seeing her and at, at this point, right? Yeah, yeah setting yeah. up the shop and courting mm-hmm. and becoming engaged is about a year later. Then Ben Price arrives in town. The next morning, Annabelle's father is showing off the bank's new safe, as large as a room and complete with a timer. While the adults are distracted, one of the young daughters locks herself in the safe. At that moment, respectable Ralph Spencer disappears, and Jimmy Valentine comes back, cracking the safe in ten minutes. Jimmy goes and greets Ben Price, expecting to be arrested, but Price declares, I don't believe I know you, do I? And then leaves town. The end. Nice and, nice and quick and simple. <laughs> yes. And now Dally Rimple Goes Wrong, which another little bit of trivia for this one is the only entry in Flappers and Philosophers that does not have its own page on Wikipedia with a handy summary to reference. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Dally Rimple returns home from World War I, a celebrated war hero, but after a month, his welcome is wearing thin. 23, having, having held a job before and having missed the opportunities his fame would have brought, Brian finds a job at the local grocery store. Their promised advancement opportunities, he soon realizes that all the other workers who have been there for years had also received the same promise, with only the owner's family members actually being promoted. Pondering his predicament in the rain, he realizes that to get ahead, to get the better life he deserves, he will have to cut corners. Success doesn't necessarily come from virtue and hard work. Pausing on a fence, he decides that if he wants something bad enough, Common sense tells him to go ahead and take it and not get caught. What he wants first is $15 to pay back his rent. Fashioning a mask and pretending to have a gun, Dolly Rimple robs one of the first men he comes across. Though his conscience initially bothers him, Brian soon decides that he can defy the contemporary morality and buy his happiness. Finding his mind worked best with spontaneity, for his second crime, Brian chooses a house at random to rob while the owners are asleep. Four more burglaries over a month, and the paper has named him Burglar Bill of the Silver District. Reveling in new, this newfound confidence over the next months, Brian is invited by his boss to meet with Mr. Frazier, the biggest politic- political influence in the city. Mr. Frazier has been watching Dally Ripple since his return home from the war, and has decided to make Brian a state senator with possible further ambitions. And Dally Ripple accepts. The end. Yeah, uh... <laughs> Yeah, there's no comeuppance, no uh, moral. Yeah, um, I mean, I, 
I'm, I'm struggling a little to think about how, how I want to approach talking about this because I feel like for uh, Fitzgerald's, we really need to like stop and talk about Horatio Alger for a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I also like I think there's some fruitful avenues if we if we put them in conversation for, uh, with each other. But maybe let's let's talk a little bit about Horatio Alger, who is a, car- uh, a writer that we've we've toyed with doing an episode about um, a Horatio Alger story for a little while on the podcast, but we've never actually done it. He is an American author who uh, in the late 1800s wrote um, hundreds of, of novels that were all basically around the idea that if you work hard and you make the right moral choice, you will be rewarded. <laughs> kind of the, uh, the, that, that the virtue is in its own reward. You will be financially rewarded with uh, yeah. upward mobility uh, within your life. Uh, if, if you yeah, are... It's a popularization of the rags to riches story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pull yourself up though, by your bootstraps. Uh, often yeah. these stories are going to begin with a child who's orphaned and uh, living on the streets, but uh, you know never turns to a life of crime. Always does the right thing. Gets adopted, you know, something along those lines. You know, gets adopted into a wealthy family and is given educational opportunities, or you know, is is some something makes them down on their luck at first, but they just keep working hard, and eventually the world rewards them. <laughs> often through some yes, sort of dance or machina. Yes, not it's not that their hard work will eventually lead to uh, success. It's that you work hard and someone will give you success. Yes, uh, and these novels for uh, young readers in the late eighteen hundreds were everywhere, and it sure feels like Scott Fitzgerald is really frustrated that he had to read those when he was a kid. (laughs) 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 But his story of Dally Rimple goes wrong. Um, You left out some of the, uh, uh, at at the end, like it's not just, I'm going to make you a, uh, a state Senator. Like there's this whole monologue about like, um, you know, I have the power to manipulate the machine uh, because you're uh, you've proven that you're not, uh, you, you're not too flaky. Uh, I'm going to trust you and put you into my machine, <laughs> essentially, yeah. and uh, and you'll become a senator. Um, and, but you're going to have to do what I say. And Dalia was like, "No problem. <laughs> I'll just and, do what you say." <laughs> and this doesn't come across as a city. This is a town, mm-hmm. and somehow this man has the ability to just make you a state senator. <laughs> yeah. And, and the implication is that he will also then become like a, a U.S. Senator, yeah. uh, you know, representing yeah, the state. Uh, it's yeah, definitely, yeah. I implied that um, you, you have the, the war resume that we can keep burnished up in. And he says like, it will, like Dally Rimple says, well, everyone's kind of like forgotten. And he's like, Oh, I will, I'll get your name back in the press. Everyone's going to remember that you're a war hero. Uh, very, very yeah. soon. Uh, if you, you're willing to, to you know, essentially vote the way I tell you to vote, and Delhi Wimples. <laughs> yeah, of course. Why? Why wouldn't I? Um, well, it was also that, uh, it, you know, you worked in the grocery store for several months without without complaint, without demanding more pay, and so we're we've seen you be a hardworking person who just keeps their head down. Yeah, it, Which, and it's, of course, it's the irony, irony that, that. Yeah, I'm not rewarding you for being a hard worker by giving you like a, a, a good, honest job. It's, I think you're a hard worker. So, uh, and you're willing to vote the way I will. So I, I think I can work with your image to, <laughs> to get what I want essentially, uh, out, out, out of you. So it's definitely flipping on its head. A lot of the Horatio Alger mythos, uh, that have been, uh, embedded in, into American culture with this. And also we, as readers know, he hasn't just been working, putting his nose to the grindstone and working hard. Um, 
Well, he's and, turned to, to a life of crime. <laughs> yeah. And part of that is that Brian feels entitled to this life that he, uh, not just a war hero, but that the army, um, when he enlisted and was tested, they said, you know, he's a, a better specimen and he's smarter than the regular soldiers. And he really believes that he is better than everyone else mm-hmm. and that he deserves success, even if he has to take it by stealing. Well, and he feels so early on in the novel, he had there's the sequence where he gets he comes home and he's a celebrated hero and the mayor of the town offers to let him stay with him for a little bit. Like, is his feet under him and he's promised that he's going to have all these opportunities. But then after just a few days, he hears like the the maid in the mayor's oh. house, like complaining. It, like It wasn't a few days. Or, it was a month. Oh, it was a month. Okay, I could. <laughs> He'd been there for, for a month, and the maid's like, "When is this guy going to go?" And he's like, "Well, I thought I had a standing offer, but fine. If you don't want me, I'll go." And then he goes to try and take everyone up on the offers that he'd been given when he first got there. Of like, yeah. "Oh, you know, I have a position for you," and everyone's like, "Well, I, I filled the position because it wasn't just going to stay here waiting for you." So it's it, it, it's not that uh, necessarily, you know, the townspeople weren't trying to help him out. It's that he 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 was kind of doing it on his own timetable and everyone moved on uh and he he was wanting to ride out his war hero dumb for for for, you know for for a little more time before he had actually uh go go get that day job yeah um but yeah oh it's it really was um just to me it it smacks of that kind of modernist cynicism so the the modernists looked around after World War One and said, all of our economic systems, our political systems, our religious beliefs led us to the biggest slaughter in the history of the world. So why would we, uh, you know, latch on to tradition and the way things have been done? Uh, we obviously need to make it new. And uh, there's a lot of critique that happens in a lot of modernist texts about uh, those traditions um, and a lot of questioning about what the right path forward is. There is an effort in a lot of modernist texts to kind of maybe point towards a path forward. This Fitzgerald one, though, really just feels like critique. I don't think it's really pointing towards a path forward <laughs> um, or, or, or a particular new way uh, to do it. It's just kind of saying that the system that exists is corrupt uh, and uh, corruption uh, or, or at least the appearance of incorruption is, is what's going to allow you to succeed within the corrupt system that exists. Because we know yeah. Brian Dalyrimple isn't an innocent uh, you know, he, he, he's a straight up criminal, but he has the appearance of being a war hero and an innocent. Uh, and so that is going to allow essentially Providence to drop in his lap political power and uh, associated wealth that's going to come with it. Yeah. And there's a great scene when he's contemplating becoming a criminal and the convolutions his mind goes through to justify this. And part of that is saying, well, the old system of virtue is its own reward and hard work will lead to success isn't working. Mm -hmm. So what's the new system? I have to cut corners and not get caught and that will lead to success. And there's something that is so delicious that he really does get rewarded uh, at the end with like this corrupt political position. Uh, Like like, I was, I didn't know how this was going to go, but I, I love the way Fitzgerald decided to end it, uh, you know, with him because of his appearance of having been a hard worker. (laughs) <laughs> being given a reward but the reward is like, like a reward that only a corrupt person could take <laughs> well i think this is, uh, might be a good point to bring in the reformed 
they retrieved Reformation mm-hmm. because, um, as you mentioned, like these stories are not far apart historically, but you have the war between them and yeah. the change to modernism. And in O. Henry, you do have the sense that, uh, or you definitely have the story of someone who can reinvent himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, a criminal can reform, become a good person. Yes, they lied to get the, to take a shortcut there of becoming a, a completely different person, but uh, somewhat, they've changed so much that at the end, the police officer, even though he knows this is the safe cracker, says, no, you're a different person now. I can't arrest you. Uh, yeah, you're, it, you're, you've become virtuous. Therefore, you should be rewarded with a happy life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is um, definitely, I mean, it's, it's, it's not as innocent of the, as the Horatio Alger young adult novel, you know, or, 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 or youth novels, but, uh, but it does have some of that flavor of, um, Hey, just go start making the right choice wherever you're at and you'll be rewarded. Um, yeah. And I think it, it does say something about how the American dream changed in the early 20th century where yeah. uh, the frontier had recently been closed uh or declared closed the idea being that uh i think it was every 500 square miles had someone occupying it mm-hmm. uh, i mean which is still a vast amount of space but yeah, there were, but there was no new land <laughs> that we could just go claim and uh how that profoundly affected the attitude of um, of the united states uh over the years and um you had this transition you know uh Oh, Henry is early on that transition. Fitzgerald, especially with the war, is much later. And you can see this divide that is happening on their philosophies. Yeah. Um, and th- th- it's, I think it's very hard, even for, for a modern person to kind of conceptualize how different World War I was than any previous war. Um, and how traumatizing the like the mass production of death that that war did in co- contrast to previous wars uh, with the level of technology that had been invented uh, that could uh, allowed, you know, so many more bullets to be fired. Uh, uh, there was just so much more death uh, that occurred in World War One uh, that, of course, that is going to transform the mindset of anyone who's trying to tell a story about contemporary life and contemporary America, even someone like Oh Henry, who you know, had been in jail, whose wife had died. Like he's not as cynical as, as Scott Fitzgerald is uh, after yeah. World War One. Um, you know, despite it's not like he had an easy life or like American life pre World War One. You know, with the open frontier or whatever was was all roses. It obviously, wasn't there was you know people have to work hard where in any time period. But it's just World War One w- was such a massive occurrence and again so different than pre- previous wars in the amount of death that that was brought about uh, that really it, it it transformed the mindset of everyone. Uh, and you definitely see it reflected in the stories that are being told in the art that's being produced. Mm-hmm. Um, the name Jimmy Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great criminal name. Uh, and what's the name that he changes his name to? Ralph Spencer. Yeah. There's he... something about that choice oh, by buddy. O. Henry. Yeah. Oh, Henry uh, just really can nail names. Uh, it just feels right. You know, that the criminal is Jimmy Valentine and the straight arrow is Ralph Spencer. 
Well, um, you know, going along with that, what a name is Dally Rimple. Oh yeah. <laughs> where yeah. do you come up, where do you come up with that? I've I've never encountered that name ever <laughs> outside of this this short story. Um, but the the O Henry story it has that element um, that I don't know if he. Well, I know he didn't because it does feel very Jean Valjean <laughs> from like this. Um, but but we see other versions of this kind of event of like someone who's gone straight has to use that, uh, you know, that criminal aspect or that or that ne'er do well part of their past. They have to use that skill set uh, for a greater good. And there's always this hovering moment of uh, is this going to ruin their life if they have gone straight and you know, they, they, they've tried to change who they are. Um, it's, it's uh, a lot of times we see it in like the, the, they pull me back in moment, right? Like I try to get out and they're pulling me back in. Uh, in this case, he's not being pulled back in to do a criminal endeavor, but he's going to have to show his hand in order to save, uh, the little girl that has locked herself in the vault. Yeah. Well, it's also reminded me of an episode of Northern exposure exposure mm-hmm. now available on streaming, um, where the radio host had his criminal past and, Someone finally catches up to him, and uh, the lawyer argues, "No, he, like you cannot arrest him because he is not the same person. He has changed over these years. He has and metaphysically so he, changed so he, much. He, he has metaphysically changed so much that uh, this new person is not the criminal. That's the old person." <laughs> uh, I love Chris, uh, the the radio announcer. Let's see, that's the episode "Crime and Punishment," which is not the one. Once upon a time, we did do. Uh, and uh an episode with uh northern exposure but we didn't cover this one but it is a really really strong episode mm-hmm. uh john corbett's role as chris in that uh but yeah it, it did definitely remind me um or, or when i was listening to the this short story uh it it made me think of that northern exposure episode too of like you know can someone reform so much that they are literally not the person they were uh in this case he's gone completely straight he's gonna get married he has a traditional job he is becoming a part of the community he's no longer the outlaw um he is mm-hmm. he's becoming part of the establishment within yeah. this and he's also changed his name uh you know so it's it's like everything <laughs> that he could do performatively to be a different person uh has been done and it, it's not only that he is giving away his tools uh right he's he's gonna give up yeah the means of being a criminal uh he, he's gonna now he's not giving it to yeah. the police <laughs> yeah he's giving it to his old friends but i uh, guess those, those tools cost him 900 dollars in 1903 money <laughs> which is so much money i was trying to like do yeah. the math a little bit hold on let me just see if i can find a uh money value never do math on the air joseph uh well it's not me it's gonna be google 900 dollars in in 1903 is the equivalent, according to this inflation calculator, of $32,000 today. Not as much as I thought. Still, I mean, still, a lot, still, but... still yeah, an awful still, lot. Yeah, I, I don't have that kind of change just laying around. <laughs> yeah. But one, not as much I, I would as I very much like be. for someone to just say, hey, do you want this $32,000? <laughs> yes. Um, any listeners who need a, that little tax write-off? Yes. Uh, but I mean, that's another symbol of of his going straight is that he's he's not going to have like the case of his tools and, you know, in the back room anymore. He, he, he yeah, wants that, it completely that gone. part of his identity will be mm-hmm. gone. It's like the kind of the last thing he's been holding on to. Are we supposed to identity. read that somehow the letter that he sent where he was telling his friend to come pick up the tools? Is that how the police found him? Um, I, I, I can't remember if there was an explanation. No, that's a valid interpretation, but it, um, 
seemed like Ben Price was just following the trail of mm-hmm. these uh, previous thefts, and Elmer was just the next town on his journey. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I think I maybe picked up that interpretation just from proximity of the events in the story because it is such a brief yeah. story. And we get him writing the letter. And then I think pretty much the next scene was Ben Price coming to, which is another great name for, for a cop. That would be a good name for the senator that's trying to buy someone too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love short story names so much. Uh, for some reason, it, like, it feels like short stories the authors really lean into, the the names that are revealing something. Even yeah, more than the, a novel, because well, there's yeah. more space in the novel. Yeah, yeah, you, you have the economy of storytelling, so the name has to tell you something on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where did he come well, up with the uh, name Dally Rimble? I mean, that's just such... <laughs> like, did he know somebody when he was uh, serving? Did he meet someone yeah. with that name before? Uh, okay, Dally Rimple family name is found in the U.S., Canada, and Scotland between 1840 and 1920. Why does it stop in nineteen twenty? Uh, what happened to the Dally Rimples? Um, <laughs> That's from Ancestry.com. Well, Joseph, Joseph I, I don't know if you heard, but there was this war that happened. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, well, another aspect of these stories uh, that work together is that criminal element. And uh, I got pondering about um, some of the differences in between the American crime fiction and European crime fiction, especially in this area of golden age detectives, where in Europe you have the gentleman thieves of Arsene Lupin and AJ Raffles or the lady thief like Irene Adler. But in the United States, uh, you have gangsters and um, bandits, a much more violent element. And this is also reflected in the detectives, of the two um, areas where the golden age detective fiction in Britain was your um, gentleman. <laughs> yeah. Your gentleman detective Men of leisure. Uh, yeah. Who uh, don't ha- have to work, but you know, are smart enough to solve these crimes. But in America, you have the hard nosed detective who thinks with their fists. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. We, uh, we recently did the, the, the dime novel, uh, um, Nick Carter. Mm-hmm. You know, which is he's he's an American detective, but he's just kind of lumbering from scene to scene and ha- by happenstance solves a crime. Um, but, yeah. you know, he, he he's he's a little Hercules. He can't he can you know, he can fight five men. Uh, he can dodge the bullets that are fired at him. There's a lot of yeah. uh, violence and just kind of like forward propulsion of action and, and not really like stopping and thinking and uh, considering the clues uh, the way that we're often given in like a Sherlock Holmes short story, uh, yeah, you know it's... that oh oh I've been given all I need I will have the answer for you tomorrow and then Sherlock Holmes sits in his over you know his his chair and uh, in the morning he reveals what what must have happened. Yeah, and the and the hard nosed detective is kind of stumbling into each clue, and in the end they make some connection that mm-hmm. maybe makes it make sense. What was the uh, <laughs> uh, it was an early film you did cover. Oh, The Big Sleep. Yeah, The Big Sleep. <laughs> I, 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 wait, I'm trying to write the summary. I realized this plot has no meaning, but it's fine because yeah. when I was watching, I did not realize how nonsensical everything was. It was only when I had to try and write the threads uh, and see how they fit together that I realized it didn't work. But it was just so the vibes were so good uh, when you're watching yeah, and, it. You don't really like catch was, on that. Uh, like one of the murders is not solved at all. It's yeah. just left there. I, 
I think it was uh, Todd Peterson, a uh, frequent guest on the podcast. He described film noir as all vibes, no plot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, how do you, does it feel right as you're, as you're in the story, then you're good. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's an interesting question about this fascination with crime, with the criminal mind, partly because of the taboo nature of their work. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also, uh, you know, their popularity, especially uh, a few years later than this in the Great Depression, where they become heroic figures in a way. Uh, yeah, and and you see, um, oh, who I was talking with someone recently about um, true crime, and for some reason we've decided like true crime is a fascination with in the podcast age, and it's like, and they were like. Do you have any familiarity with published entertainment throughout yeah. history? <laughs> like as long as there has been some means of mass producing entertainment, there's been true crime uh, accounts that are being published or or recorded or, you know, on the airwaves or on film. Uh, uh, we've always had a fascination with true crime. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to put a uh, point to something like Jack the Ripper as the beginnings of the journalistic aspect of it. But mm -hmm. you have all the ballads of uh, and plays about criminals before that yeah so, and uh i mean a lot of early dime novels would be um either uh outlaw stories or detective stories right you know it, and a lot of them claiming claiming to be based on true stories like the pinkertons uh detective agency had their own line of dime novels that was supposedly from their files uh yes. heavily ghostwritten i'm sure and and transformed and, <laughs> for, and not, for uh, not an advertisement for their services in any way no no <laughs> it's just we're just telling the facts but that, and that's also what dragnet uh you know the radio mm -hmm. show and then the tv show like like famously they claimed these were all from the real files right the uh, yes. the, the dragon uh, story they, uh, or that real police officers sent them in these cases that they could mm -hmm. to be used for the show uh, and and even in things that are clearly fictionalized often they'll make allusions to real world cases that they know uh, like law and order would do this all the time uh, right. where if there was a, a famous thing that happened they would you know just uh, transpose names a little bit uh, then do an episode around some famous normal event and uh you know i remember all growing up it was like america's most wanted rescued nine one like all these things are part of this fascination with true crime uh but why do you think there's that more you were identifying like a uh, maybe a little distinction between the european criminal stories that are being told and some of the american is there any reason that you can think of as to why it's a different flavor of criminal that is maybe being uh written about or or explored a little bit more i think part of it is the frontier that i brought up earlier where uh, as the United States pushed westward, uh, trying to bring law to those areas was a long process. It was often, uh, we would call law lawlessness, but it was kind of, uh, you have to defend your own land from the, or your own cattle from these bandits. And, mm -hmm. um, and so there, there's the sense of, I think, the transition that, okay, now that civilization, quote, has spread across um, that these criminals uh, transform mm -hmm. partly into, you know, partly into gangsters, uh, more violent type based in the cities, 
but also that um, the nature of what is considered crime has changed. Yeah, that's that's an interesting too. Um, I mean, on the heroic side of it, we you, we often have talked about uh, you know the outsider hero who's a little bit of savage, a little bit of uh, civilization. Uh, you know, this mix. I saw a trailer for a new TV show. I think it's called The Lawman Bass Reeves. But the first line is yes, a little kid walking. The, uh, uh, from the creator of Yellowstone. Yes. Uh, but the, the, the opening scene was a little kid walking up to him and saying, are you a lawman or an outlaw? And he just says, bit of both, I reckon. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, there it is. I'm going to have to use that when I talk about the, the outsider hero. <laughs> um, yep. That is just like the, the distillation of, the, of this character type, uh, you know, the, which is different from the establishment hero who is part of the system, uh, you know, deputies and, and, you know, part of that. But the outsider hero is the ones that are on the edge and can use the tools of savagery to protect civilization. And uh, when we're talking about the the, the villain form of that, uh, I think uh, we be, because our heroes are are uh, in, in a lot of the American literature that we're talking about in the, in this era are going to be employing that violence in order to stop uh, these criminals. We we naturally create a more violent uh, type of character for the foil, you know, for for that mm-hmm. opposite uh, for them to face. Whereas you know. Sherlock Holmes' great adversary is a gentleman thief. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Moriarty. Uh, and, but Nick Carter, he's going to be running into a room with five thugs, uh, and he's just going to be throwing fists at those at those uh, five thugs um, simultaneously. Yeah. And as we move into the 20th century, with uh, that idea of civilization is now spread from coast to coast, supposedly, mm-hmm. Uh you have that a transition occurs and that's becomes not about uh, fight using that violence to bring civilization. It's now that the gangsters are, or the criminals are the individualists in a collectivist society. And uh, throughout the 20th century, there are periods where that unity is emphasized. And there are times when that individualism is emphasized. Yeah, it's like, where are we at in the Cold War? This is one thing that you can track a lot of that. <laughs> Which one is going to be yeah. uh, emphasized a bit more? Uh, I love it when, uh, like, like in a particular genre or, or medium, you can see, like, the same theme sometimes being flipped. Like, in science, science fiction films, you can famously, like, okay, is the hero in this one the military or is it the scientist? Because in the next one, it's probably going to flip. Uh, which ones are the good guys and which ones are the bad guys? Uh, or, or, that, that who are, are we glorifying the problem. in these stories? Even yeah. if the criminal ultimately gets punished in the end, mm-hmm. um, are we glorifying their story, uh, or is it about the heroic detectives and police officers or uh, military police who are bringing order back to mm-hmm. society? Yeah, and in it was interesting to listen to these back to back, which I did. Where um, I mean, I, there was something pleasing about Jimmy Valentine going straight and like being willing to sacrifice this new life that he was setting up, uh, you know, with, with his, his, uh, wife to be, uh, with the family, like very much settling down and trying to become an honest member of society and the law saying, okay, we'll look the other way (laughs) on that. Like there was something a little satisfying about that. It was not what the law should have done, Uh, (laughs) but, but it worked in this particular story. But at the same time, I also kind of reveled in Fitzgerald's just, raw cynicism about politics and about celebrity and about how to advance uh economically or socially uh you know you know in society that it's just 
he, he's just so tired of the performative aspects of American culture uh, that he sees around him. Uh, yeah. And it's just dripping off the page in this one. Yeah. And uh, great use of the fence symbolism in that story as well, where uh, it, like when he decides to become a criminal, he is literally at a fence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, then it, it, there are just these little things through the rest of the story. And like when he's offered to become the state senator, the uh, Mr. Frazier says, well, you know, we'll do this as long as you stay on the right side of the fence. But it doesn't tell us which side that is. Right. Well, the, the implication is absolutely the, the right side of the fence is just doing what we tell you because we put you into this position. Yeah. So you will scratch our back. You know, it, it's not go vote your conscience. Don't go be uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah, uh, the right side of the going. fence is is participating in this corrupt system. Yeah. So, you know, it's changing that symbolism of uh, one point is about morality of which side on am I on and uh, mm-hmm. Now that he's has this job, it's not about right and wrong anymore. It's well, what is going to get me success? What's going to let me le- live a comfortable life? All right. Did I catch right when I was listening to the story? When he decides to become a criminal, he cuts off part of his jacket to make a mask. Yes. <laughs> and cuts like <laughs> terrible eye holes that he can barely see through. Uh, but it's raining too. <laughs> yeah. So he's like so it. it it's like an old timey comic strip bad guy with the, just the mask tied around his face, like right around his eyes, like a Ninja Turtles mask. Almost. Yeah. And it has the ragged holes. They could barely see through. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, he, he, somehow it works, but he's not like a great criminal. <laughs> well, he wants to think he is. Yes. He thinks he's he wants so to be Arsene Lupin. Yeah. And yes, he is getting away with all of this, but he is not a master. Well, it actually says he's not a master planner. He wants to do some of this spontaneously. Um, because he thinks that's uh, he thinks better in that state. And- now, I think that there is something interesting in both these stories. We are given enough to know that these men are criminals, but they're not monsters, right? Well, uh, yes. So, so Jimmy Valentine, he's a safe cracker, but he's not someone. He, he never uses a weapon that we see. There's no implication that he's ever actually hurt, uh, you know, physically harmed someone. Uh, in in his his criminal past, he's described um, as a polite man that everyone kind of likes once they get to know him, uh, yeah. because they don't know he's a safe cracker. But uh, that, and, yeah, he's uh, endearing. And Dally Rimple, we know he's a world uh, a war hero. He showed bravery, um, and you know, and saved people. But then also when he becomes a criminal, and one of the houses, he just grabs a whole bunch of stuff and leaves, and he finds yeah. out that uh, one of the things he stole was a a, a false set of teeth. And he starts to be like racked with guilt that the the person he stole it from is not going to be able to eat. Like I I, I like I, I wanted to take their money, but I didn't. Like this is too much. And so he he like writes does he like write false teeth on a bag, put them in yeah. there, and like the next night goes and drops them on the doorstep. Like yeah, sorry, I, you know, like I, I really didn't mean to take that one. <laughs> the first clue the police have of this crying ring that's plaguing the city. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think they, they, like the newspaper says, we know the criminal is still in town, uh, but yeah, we're not going to reveal how. <laughs> and, and as readers, we know it's because he dropped false teeth on the doorstep. Um, yeah, so it's not that he's entirely lost his morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that he gets and he gets to the. Th- I think part of it is also he's seeking the thrill that he probably had during the war, and he doesn't have mm-hmm. any more in this state life. And this is one way to get that thrill. Yeah, and you definitely get a feeling for um, it. 
it's not just that he's being denied uh, the chance for advancement in his job at the grocery store. Like this job is just drudgery. <laughs> just yeah, it's uh, rigid, structured. Any um, anything that he could do that would bring any enjoyment, there's a store detective that's just watching him, yeah, <laughs> and saying like, "I, I will report you uh, if, if you if you go smoke on your break, I, I will report you." Yeah, this is actually reflected in Fitzgerald's prose, where uh, you know the beginning of the story is kind of this traditional structure, and as he enters in the curve of life, the sense structures start to get jumbled, uh, the phrasing gets more rapid and mm-hmm. exuberant. And like when he's when it's in, he's in the house, it's this staccato rhythm uh, uh, that you don't get the full picture. It's just a lot of action. Yeah, when it, when he when he's doing his thieving, uh, yes. and when it's when it's the his job moving the boxes and stuff. I like I I, I didn't read it. I listened to it, but it just sounded dull. Like the yeah. way things are being described, it just it's not that the actions being described were dull. It's the words that he was using uh, created this almost mind numbingness as the narrator was reading along. And the narrator did a fantastic job uh, in, in reading these short stories and capturing a lot of that. Um, and uh, I, I, I think it would be rewarding to go do a reread, like a close reading and looking at, like you're saying, the sentence structure and the word choice and like the sounds of the letters that he chooses to use uh, in, in the words that he's choosing for different moments. Because mm-hmm. you definitely feel him coming alive when he, yeah. he turns yeah, to you, life. You, crime. It's a really good way of the writing, writing by itself, expressing the emotional state, not actually stating what the emotional state is. Just mm-hmm. how it's written and gets it across. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, John, for suggesting these two stories. Did you have a favorite of the yeah. two? Um, I probably would go with Dalrymple a little more. Um, but like I said, I, you know, when I first heard these stories on the podcast, it was just clicked that, oh, these need to go together. And at some mm-hmm. point, I will talk to Joe about these on the protagonist podcast. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad you did. I, like I said, I've, I've, read plenty of Fitzgerald and plenty of O. Henry, but I had never come across either of these two. Uh, so I'm really glad that you suggested them and listeners. These are public domain, so you can absolutely find uh, online versions if you want to read them. Or uh, like you mentioned, the classic tales podcast um, has these in their feed uh, at the moment. Now the, the classic tales podcast has been going forever and don't the older episodes kind of disappear from the feed and you've got to uh, be a patron to, to access the older uh, stuff. Actually, they've recently started re-releasing some of the early stuff. So it's moved from just one day a week to two days a week, one, a new thing and one, an older thing that they're re-releasing. Uh, but in general, uh, like th- that is a podcast that's just great resource for well-produced uh, audio versions of some classic stories, a lot of which are maybe just a little deeper cut than everything that you had to read uh, in high school or a, co- a college literature course, uh, where like in those courses, you're going to sprint across, you know, decades so fast that it's really like, here's a highlight, here's a highlight, here's a highlight. And because the Classic Tales podcast has been going for so long and it's all public domain works, I, I think there's a really good vari- variety uh, that's in there. Yeah, and if uh, they don't have it on the feed, they have their online store and they are uh, beyond reasonably priced. You can get really good deals on all, the, all their collections. 
All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you again, John, for coming on and talking about these. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. I just pause on that name. Let me give that a fresh read. Dally Ripple, Dally Ripple. Okay. <clears throat>